Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's program, Bipartisanship in Congress Still Matters, a conversation with Francis Lee. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Lee, who is a professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University. Her research focuses on congressional politics, national policymaking, party politics, and representation. She has authored or co-authored four books, including her most recent publication with James Curry, The Limits of Party, Congress and Lawmaking in a Polarized Era, which we're going to focus on today. Welcome, Professor Lee. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading in your books is you learn a lot. You learn a lot about actually what's going on. And so I want to start just by doing a couple snapshots of what's going on in Congress and give everybody an opportunity to kind of get closer to what's happening in Congress and maybe not rely so much on the media's portrayal, which can be misleading, as well as some of the statements by uh, leadership in Congress. So let's start with 2017. This was a, a big year, of course. Donald Trump was elected. Republicans had majorities in the uh, US House and Senate. Paul Ryan comes in, who had been at, in Washington his entire career. He was thrilled. Um, about the opportunity, as he saw it, to enact his blueprint, it was known as the better way. He described it as a once in a lifetime opportunity that most of us only dream about. What was Speaker Ryan talking about and how did things work out for him? Well, uh, Speaker Ryan was talking about the, uh, the plan that uh, uh, set of task forces, Republican task forces in the House had put together for what they would do on a wide range of policy fronts if given the opportunity. The opportunity meaning if they won uh, unified control of government at, in the 2016 elections, which to their surprise, to everyone's surprise, they did. Uh, and so, you know, it, this was a, a time of great euphoria for Republicans. You know, they, they, had, they had a plan that hashed out a lot of the issues and they thought they would be able to march in lockstep to do, um, you, know, to, you know, to do all this, to transform American policy. But what they discovered quickly was that it, it's much easier to get members of Congress to agree on a document than to, uh, or on a message um, you know, that prepared for an election campaign than to agree on the details of public policy. They kicked off their, uh, their legislative drive of the, uh, you know, with their top priority to repeal and replace Obamacare, devoted nine months to the effort, uh, a series of embarrassing defeats for the party. This was the issue on which they had campaigned uh, most prominently going back to the passage of, the, uh, of Obamacare in 2010. They had taken dozens of votes to repeal Obamacare, including they had, they had passed a repeal bill in 20, 
15 while Obama was still president. So they thought they would be able to just execute on that plan. They had used reconciliation, the, you know, the, the process that allows uh, the uh, uh, majority party to avoid a filibuster in the Senate. And they had passed it. Obama had vetoed it. They were ready to do it again. But um, internal fractures in the party over lots of different issues, the insurance regulations in, uh, in uh, Obamacare, which were popular, what to do about those, the fact that many states, including many states represented by Republican senators, had already expanded Medicaid, what to do about those funding streams, what to do about the fact that a lot of people were getting subsidies for health insurance under Obamacare. How were all those issues going to be addressed? And they couldn't reach agreement. I eventually got a bill out of the House of Representatives, barely. But they got members to vote for it on the basis that you know, it would be reworked in the Senate. And so let, let's, kick the, let's kick the process along. But in the Senate, it was, you know, despite uh, lengthy negotiations, the party could not coalesce around a plan. Uh, and eventually the whole effort um, went down to defeat. Uh, so it was a real lesson in how difficult it is for a majority party, even in our polarized era, to do grand things with no cross-party support. In fact, that it very rarely happens, which is one of the things that um, Jim and I discuss in the book, that there's, there's, there's little policymaking it today, uh, even in under polarized conditions, uh, that rests only on the support of one party. So I just want to give a shout out to folks. We're going to use terms, and I just want to be clear about it. Unified government just means that one party controls the White House, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the U.S. Congress. By contrast, Divided government means that, that there are different parties controlling one of those three. And so it makes it even harder. Um, as you know well, Speaker Ryan had been a strong advocate for a fairly massive reduction in government. He wanted to see a very substantial cut in spending. Uh, he wanted to see financial regulations that have been passed uh, during the financial crisis in 2010. He wanted to see those repealed entirely. He wanted to see limits on coverage for abortion. He wanted work requirements imposed on food stamps and on and on down the line. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think he struck out on every single one of those things. Struck out on all those things, that's right. Yes, all those were part of the plan, the better way. Um, but all of them were impossible, and they were impossible not due to Democrats' fil a filibuster in the Senate. They were due to the fact that the Republican Party couldn't agree among themselves on those issues. I just want to mention, if you go back in time, you can look this up on the media and Google. If you go to January 2017 through the spring, there was all sorts of happy talk among Republicans, including Paul Ryan, who was giving victorious speeches about what they were going to do. Um, so there was tremendous hope, elation, about what was about to happen um, that, as Professor Lee just said, didn't. Let's jump ahead to 2020. It's very different circumstances. The Democrats are now have a majority under Nancy Pelosi in the U.S. House. Um, you've got uh, uh, President Trump in the White House. You've got Republicans um, in the Senate. And COVID strikes in the beginning of the year. Uh, the country was panicked um, and bill was passed in the spring or bills were passed in the spring. And then things just went quiet and there was lots of turmoil and 
controversy about the need for more action. And it just didn't happen for many months. Walk us through 2020 and why that's different from what happened in 2017 with Paul Ryan's, you know, elated condition. Well, it's difficult to imagine political circumstances that were less hospitable to a strong government response to the to the COVID crisis. And we had just finished with a highly divisive presidential impeachment uh, that you know where the, the president had been acquitted. It is purely. Uh, all, all on party, all on party lines. Uh, you have the House controlled by Democrats, the Senate controlled by Republicans, and it's a presidential election year. These are not circumstances that would promote, by, you would expect, bipartisan cooperation. And yet, in March 2020, uh, in the teeth of the uh, the crisis, he passed the CARES Act. Uh, immense government response to its $2.2 trillion legislation that um, provided assistance across the U.S. economy from, from workers to small businesses to hospitals. Uh, you know, 10% of GDP, basically, uh, in the CARES Act. It's unprecedented piece of legislation. And they did it in an uh, entirely bipartisan manner without uh, opposition. This was, of course, this was this was difficult. Uh, the um, the negotiations, especially over pandemic uh, unemployment aid between um, McConnell and Schumer, but they eventually got a deal. And it, it we shouldn't underestimate how important it was. I mean, it sustained U.S. incomes in the face of uh, rising unemployment, more than thirty million people losing their losing their jobs. Uh, so, you know, it was it was a robust response and made the difference for millions of Americans as that money ran out at the end of the summer. Then there was a question about to what extent it would be renewed. And there was hard bargaining um, between the uh, Trump administration and, and Pelosi. And I think, you know, some worry on the part of Democrats that a uh, uh, striking a major deal right before a presidential election might help Trump. Uh, get reelected. So I think there was some mixed feelings there. Um, but um, then the election, uh, uh, then the election occurred. And in the post election period, they you know, came together with a significant uh, additional COVID aid package, another $900 billion, which is more than the Pentagon gets in a year. And that was just to patch them through until additional aid could pass in the new administration. So uh, you know, quite an amazing uh, level of bipartisan cooperation. Should also point out at the end of uh, uh, D December 2020, it was additional bipartisan legislation that extended beyond the COVID aid packages. Um, it wasn't just uh, a bipartisan agreement to, uh, you know, continue the assistance to small businesses and to continue unemployment. The legislation also included a major energy package regarded as the most significant climate legislation Congress has ever passed, a, a $35 billion a uh, uh, $35 billion package for clean energy uh, and uh, including a, a, a ban on uh, fluorohydrocarbons. Uh, there was also, in addition to that, uh, a, finally a deal on uh, the whole issue of surprise medical billing, 
uh, an issue that they had been working out, working on in Congress for a decade. They finally got the deal. This was all part of that December package. Got very little coverage. I'd, I'd say, in fact, all of these packages that passed over the course of 2020 got limited news coverage. I, I, I wonder what share of, the, of Americans who follow news closely were cognizant of the extent of bipartisan cooperation that occurred in 2020. It's quite, quite remarkable. That's a story, you're right, that we don't hear very much. You hear the story about the Hatfields and McCoys and um, how they're destroying America. You don't hear the story about them coming together. So let's jump ahead to um, Joe Biden is inaugurated. Um, the first major thing he does is to pass a relief package, another $1.9 trillion. Not one single Republican vote for it. So this looks like you've got Democrats to control the White House, the House and the Senate, and uh, they, they are actually able to deliver on, on that majority status. So does this contradict the story you're telling? No, um, I, I would say um, it, it, it doesn't contradict it. It is, uh, it, the American Rescue Plan is important legislation but it is temporary legislation. It is sim very similar to the CARES Act, uh, that in policy terms, it's not, th it's not that large a departure from what was already, that had already been done on a bipartisan basis with all Republicans in agreement. Republicans were not providing that agreement here in 2021 uh, because their view was the package was too large. Uh, a view that was shared, in fact, by Larry, you know, Larry Summers. I mean, it was a, it was a legitimate position. You know, to what extent is the, this degree of income and uh, financial support for the economy needed in 2021? Uh, so there was disagreement, and Republicans approached the issue the same way they approached the stimulus package under Obama, which was to with, withhold support. Democrats um, proceed. I think they could have negotiated a much, a much smaller package on on on. Uh, uh, bipartisan basis, um, but um, so, so Democrats got what they what they wanted in the you know this is it, the model was the the legislation that had cleared the House uh, under President Trump, um, but had not become law. The you know Heroes Act that um, that uh, had House Democrats had favored, so they had something ready to go and they were able to push it. I think now we move into the Democrats' agenda. Uh, which would be more similar to the Republican agenda um, of, of 2017, the list, the wish list, the things that the that the the party had wanted to do on in, uh, uh, in an enduring uh, uh, way. You know, the the vote voting rights reform, reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, uh, and uh, you know, to restore elements of the Voting Rights Act that had. Uh, uh, had been struck down by the Supreme Court, uh, major election reform package, which is HR one. It's the House top, top priority in the uh, in the House. They want to do a minimum wage increase. So this is more standard party politics, and I think you'll see um, Democrats struggling with internal disagreement on these matters. I'd add also add police reform will be con internally controversial for the party, and they will deal with some of the same internal fractures that Republicans had to struggle with in 2017. So your message to progressives who are chomping at the bit to get their agenda is, is what? Well, look what happened in 2017. Uh, and uh, you, know, you really think that the Democratic Party is uh, substantially more unified in, internally than the Republican Party of 2017? 
because the Republican Party of 2017 found itself unable to pass its, its wish list. Uh, so I think, you know, some realism here is needed about, uh, uh, you know, the, the challenges of uh, legislating on party lines and recognize how rarely it happens. Very little legislation passes on with the support only of one party, even in the, pol the polarized Congress. Uh, so you, you, so the Repu Republicans basically got two big agenda items done uh, on party line votes in 2017. They got their tax, uh, their, their tax cuts, tax reform legislation, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and they got to overturn uh, the the, uh, the regulations that had been adopted late in the Obama administration. Thirteen different. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, different regulations that were unturned under, overturned under um, the Congressional Review Act. Those were the two. That's it. So they had unified control. They got two uh, major uh, enactments on party line votes. Everything else they did in that Congress with unified Republican control under President Trump had bipartisan support. I think it's very interesting. And I would just say I've, it pushes back against the assumption among many Democrats that Republicans unify. It's the Democrats who can't get their act together. And what you're showing is, no, actually both parties struggle with the disagreements within the party. And someone like Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, he's not an exception. He's really the rule. There are quite a few. I mean, there's a lot of focus on Manchin, I think, because it is very helpful to Manchin to be out front on this. Uh, you know, this is a, a state that voted overwhelmingly to reelect Trump, that if he had maintained some distance from the Democratic Party in a public way, that's useful to him. But I mean, I would point to that there were eight uh, Senate Democrats who voted against Bernie Sanders' amendment to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So it's not just Manchin. He, I think he, the focus on him is outsized. Um, well, let me ask you about um, the urgency of now. Uh, here in Minneapolis, we've had um, two African-American men who were killed by police um, just a day or so ago, we had um, a, a jury verdict against the police officer who killed George Floyd, uh, three guilty um, decisions. And there is a palpable sense in Minnesota, and I think around the country, at least among those concerned about those issues, that Congress has to act. The urgency will force Congress to act. And we saw um, yesterday, uh, the president making a pitch for the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which has already been passed by the House and is sitting over at the Senate. What would be your expectation about the passage of the George Floyd Act, uh, given what I've described, that environment, but also what you know about Congress? Well, as I said, it's just extraordinarily rare that you find uh, you see legislation pass Congress and become law. Again, you get entered on the U.S. code without bipartisan support. So, you know, my my uh, you know baseline as you present this scenario, and as we consider these important issues, is that it's just extremely uh, difficult and rare for a party to do this alone. I think there is potential for bipartisanship if it's handled properly. 
uh, I mean, we had uh, significant legislation, criminal justice reform under Trump, uh, the First Step Act. Uh, that brought together liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina has uh, indicated a desire to work on police reform. But can, can Democrats make the concessions that would be necessary to work with Republicans in a bipartisan manner on this? And will Republicans be prepared to give Democrats a win on this? It t- always takes two to tango. You know, you can't just you, you shouldn't blame the, the, the majority party for failures of bipartisanship when the minority party has a choice in the matter as well. Um, but I think that there is a there is some potential for bipartisanship here. I'm very doubtful that you will see legislation enacted on uh, a party line vote. I think there would be a filibuster in the Senate. And, I, and I, my suspicion is that this issue is not important enough for senators, that they're prepared to change the way the whole Senate operates just for this issue. And I want to just say here that this is not your, you know, your preference in terms of how policy turns out. You're a, an accomplished student and analyst of Congress. You're reporting on the facts, how things have played out over the last half century in Congress. And I recommend strongly, um, if you're interested in this, that you take a look at uh, Professor Lee's book with, with Jim Curry, The Limits of Party Congress and the Lawmaking of Polarized Era. Um, so let's pick up, you've talked about the bipartisanship. It sounds promising and maybe surprising to a lot of people, but there's certainly limits to it. I mean, each party has got its, its red lines, right? That where there's not gonna be bipartisanship. That's right. So the, the, the way these bipartisan deals come together, which is still the norm for how legislation occurs, is that parties have their lists of things they must have for a deal to be worthwhile. And if we don't get X or Y, then there's no point entering into this negotiation or certainly not signing on to it. And then parties all have a li- both have a list of things they cannot accept. But there's a great deal between those two. Those, those, those two, um, that, you know, parties can get some of the key things that they need to have as long as the other party doesn't cross the red line for the opposing party. And, uh, and so, you know, you see th- these kind of log rolls come together where parties get, w- get, they trade off wins and they often get rolled together in large omnibus packages that, um, that uh, pass usually at a deadline. You know, Congress has difficulty doing anything in advance of a deadline, the end of a Congress right before a recess. And then you get very little new- news coverage of what actually occurred. It'll be a, rep- there'll be a story, Congress, uh, reaches a deal to keep the government open. And then the, the, the legislation will have lots of other stuff in there that will just not get any attention. So I think this is part of why the public sees Congress is not doing anything, that there's a failure of news coverage here, partly because of this, the tendency to massive omnibus packages. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Congress doesn't legislate in the way that it used to. It used to be that you'd pass a lot of separate bills. Today, not very many individual uh, laws get enacted, but they are huge, uh, vast. Congress is not enacting less uh, by way of so pages of legislation today than it was in the 1990s, 1980s. And in fact, it had, does more than it did in the 60s and 70s by that measure. Uh, but uh, it does it in fewer individual pieces of legislation. 
So, uh, but there, there is, there's still a great deal that uh, occurs and gets done, and yet it doesn't break through. I think there's a negativity bias also in news coverage that when bipartisanship occurs, it means, oh, well, they've worked it out. It's fine. Uh, it, it's not interesting, like conflict is interesting or uh, uh, you know, news about things going wrong is interesting. Um, and so it, 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 you, there might be a story or two, uh, and then it just disappears. So let's get to uh, why this is happening. Uh, what would explain why Speaker Ryan, very accomplished a politician, and um, Joe Biden, very experienced uh, former senator and now president, why are they unable to move through their party's agenda? Well, it's hard to get all members of your party on the same page. Um, that and, and majorities today are narrow. You know, uh, Ryan's majority um, was slim. The, 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 the majority that Democrats have to work with today is as, as narrow as is possible for a majority to be. That in the uh, in the Senate they must have the support of every Democrat to do something without um, any bipartisan support. So that's a high bar. That's difficult for leaders. Um, uh, the, they may be misled by the ease with which the party can come together on symbolic matters. You, know, you can pass a bill out of the House if uh, members know that it's really not going anywhere in the Senate. They won't scrutinize it uh, in the same depth. It's because they realize it's really just laying down a marker. It's not legislating. So you can get agreement let's say, around partisan initiatives, partisan priorities, under circumstances where it's sort of theoretical. This isn't very hard for Republicans to agree to pass lots of Obamacare repeal bills um, before they got their majority. But once they did, then suddenly you've got to pay attention to the issues more closely and you realize all the, 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 the downsides of repeal for your constituents, for people you represent, becomes real. Uh, there's a lot of symbolic activity in a bicameral Congress, um, as particularly in, and in national government that's fre frequently characterized by uh, divided control. Uh, so it's easy to pass stuff that you know will be vetoed. Um, so there's, uh, and, and it pleases the base. To, you know, so you can you, you, you can give your base what they want as long as it is uh, just in as a, uh, just a matter of symbolism. It's much harder, however, to do that when there are real world consequences. So for instance, uh, the House of Representatives passed a bill relating to reparations. Um, it's widely known that's not going anywhere in the Senate. It's something that progressives and others um, in the Democratic Party feel passionately about. Um, so the House passes this, it sends a message to the party faithful that we hear you, but those voting for it in a very, very closely divided house, pretty confident, don't worry about it, it's not going anywhere. Right, and it would be hard for the house to put together that majority if they were actually passing the bill. So you've talked about the divisions within the uh, party as a, as a break, um, even when you have the majority as Joe Biden does now, how about the nifty little uh, system that James Madison put together known as checks and balances? Does that play a role here? 
Very much so. I mean, checks and balances are certainly alive and well in the polarized era. You know, we, you know, you uh, people are uh, probably cognizant of the um, the trends in Congress to you know, increase frequency of party conflict. You know, the mo many more votes break down on party lines, and the parties march together in lockstep on more votes. Um, in uh, you know in, in the post 1980 period, but we're also talking about a period that 75 percent of the time has had a Congress controlled by one party and a president controlled by the other. Uh, so you're not going to get legislation that only one party supports under circumstances of divided control, which is the normal state of affairs in American politics. A lot of the bargaining and negotiation that happens in Congress is because it's frankly forced on um, uh, members and leaders. They don't enjoy it. Uh, it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to have to settle for much less than what you want in many cases. Um, and it's unpleasant not to be able to do the things that your constituents would really like to see you do, um, but that the other party disagrees with. Um, but that, that, that's the normal state of affairs. You divide, divide government is typical and unified governments are rare and usually short lived. You know, I would be surprised if Democrats continue to hold on to unified control after the midterms, for example. That, you know, just a loss of, you know, small handful of seats, you know, we'll, you know, have to see how many seats are filled by the time we have the 2022 elections. But, um, you know, you would expect based on his based on, uh, you know, American election history that the, the, the party lose the party controlling the presidency will lose seats in Congress. That is the norm. It's just a sort we call it. In fact, it's the midterm law. It's often referred to if you're teaching intro to American government. That's how you'll teach. It's so typical. So that means that Democrats probably have only until uh, 2022. And most most legislation happens in year one rather than year two. Uh, so, so this is their shot. Yeah. So we've got uh, internal divisions within the party. There's a majority, but the majority has different factions. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the fact that you've got two different chambers, the House and the Senate. They're elected at different time points. They have different interests. Obviously, you've got the fact that you've got the legislative branch, but you've also got the president uh, who may have different uh, agenda items. And you see some of that tension playing out right now with Joe Biden and particularly the progressives at this moment. Um, let's talk about another element. We've got a bunch of questions here about it. The filibuster, uh, which is a rule in the Senate that requires 60 votes to move uh, programmatic legislation how much of a factor is that? Is, is this being overplayed by the media or is it, would it be in your, your, your top list of reasons that the majority can't get what it wants? Well, I would say the top reason why majority party can't get what it wants uh, is the frequency of divided government. <laughs> that, uh, you know, the filibuster is not particularly important for forcing bipartisan compromise under conditions of divided government because legislation is going to have to have support from both parties to become law under those conditions. So the filibuster really only comes into play with teeth under conditions of unified government, where the filibuster allows the minority party to block an agenda item that the majority cares about. So Jim and I took stock of that in our book, in our study, to look at when majority parties fail on their agendas, why do they fail? And how important is the filibuster as a cause of failure? We find that about 
a third of majority party failures in unified government can be traced to the difficulty of clearing the 60 vote threshold in the Senate. So it's important. But more failures occurred because of internal divisions within the majority party, two thirds, in fact, um, of, uh, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the failures in unified government stemmed from the inability of the majority party to coalesce. So there's a tendency, I think, to underrate that second limit on parties. Parties, in fact, want to hide that from their supporters. They don't, uh, uh, it's much easier to blame the opposing party. They don't want to say, you know, we can't get our people all together on this on the same page. Um, the filibuster gives them an out in many cases. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll say we can't do this because of the problem of the filibuster. So they, they, they hype the filibuster as an obstacle because it's a very nice way to pass the buck to the opposing party. Is, is Mitch McConnell getting a raw deal? There are a bunch of questions here asking about Mitch McConnell's blatant abuse of the filibuster um, and uh, how he's the real roadblock. I couldn't find we couldn't find evidence of differential behavior on the part of Democrats when they are in the minority and Republicans within their when they are in the minority in general. Uh, in the use of the filibuster, um, so I, I. So if the filibuster was eliminated, it sounds like you're saying you wouldn't expect a kind of transformation in the productivity of Congress when there's unified government. No. Um, no, I wouldn't. There would be some wins that Democrats uh, right now would be would would have a better chance of getting um, than they currently do. I, I don't think there's anything in the bag. Like if we if we looked at the list, you know, that we just considered here, uh, here what Democrats would like to do in 2021, I'm not totally confident that the party is so unified that it would be able to do it in the absence of a filibuster. You know, election reform, HR one. There are a lot of Democrats with doubts about that package. Passes the House because it's easy to pass it, knowing that um, it's still going to have to get through the gauntlet of the Senate. Um, minimum wage increase. There's a lot of disagreement within the party about how high to go. I think you could get a bipartisan deal on, say, a $10 or $11 minimum wage, but I, I, that won't satisfy um, the, uh, uh, the, the the Democratic left, the progressives in the party. That they will see that as a the, um, as a failure. Uh, so, uh, but what will Democrats be able to do in the absence of the filibuster on the minimum wage? They could probably raise it, but I, I think Man Manchin isn't prepared to go above twelve dollars. Right. Um, so, in other words, the difference between so you abolish the filibuster for a twelve dollar minimum wage when you can get a ten dollar minimum wage on a bipartisan deal is hard for me to believe that the de that Senate Democrats would take that trade. So let me uh, move on. We've got a bunch of questions here, which I'm filtering in. One of the most remarkable uh, themes in your book is how little things have changed. The word continuity is used often to describe the last half century in terms of congressional activity. It's just, it's staggering when you consider that we have political parties that are much more unified. The conservative Democrats are gone for the most part. It's much more of a liberal party. The Republicans in, uh, are much more uh, conservative than uh, even 
the the unity among uh, Democrats. Um, you've got a party nomination system that uh, polices that. Uh, you've got a change in the operations within Congress to reinforce the power of leaders so they can really drive policy. And yet continuity, it's almost unbelievable. That's right. That was the reaction that Jim and I had uh, when, we be, when we started work on this research. We knew that the way Congress operated had changed dramatically. We, you know, we knew that there, there was much more partisan conflict, that the parties were much more internally unified. We knew that the leaders play a much more prominent role in, in negotiating a policy in the contemporary Congress. We knew that um, uh, regular order was rarely observed, meaning that you know, when they would in, engage in legislating, it's much more centralized in top leaders. The leaders you know, more or less put it together and that uh, you know, committee chairs are not, do, do not have as much by way of independent influence. So we knew all this, in, we legislative scholars, we knew about all these internal changes in how Congress operated. And we, and we certainly don't contest the proposition that American politics is highly polarized. So our question in that was how, what difference is this making for lawmaking, for the laws that pass? And here's you know, where we begin to find these continuities. We were very surprised to find so little effect on enacting coalitions, you know, even as Congress has become so much more polarized in roll call voting generally, if you just look at the votes that result in the enactment of laws, there hasn't been any increase in partisanship in Congress at all. So I'm, I'm really struck, if you look at polling, you see that there's substantial majorities of Americans saying they want both parties to compromise. And what you're describing is something you know, much more like that than, than I think is commonly assumed. Are Americans getting more of what they want than maybe they know? They're getting more of what they want than they know. Yes, I think that's a fair, uh, that's a fair summary. Uh, and so there's a misunderstanding, I think, between Congress as an institution and our national government and the American public that they want to see bipartisanship. Well, that is how Congress predominantly legislates. It's rare for Congress to legislate any other way. And Congress does a lot. I mean, you, we just discussed the pandemic aid in 2020, but it wasn't only pandemic aid. The Congress also did made, had a major policy breakthroughs in 2020. I can list for you a, a, a series of other major policy uh, breakthroughs on a bipartisan basis through the Trump presidency, which I, I, I'm not sure any of that broke through, I mean, to a public, you know, continually uh, uh, engaged with the latest controversy, the latest scandal, the latest outrage, and so little attention to what was happening uh, on the lawmaking front. So here's a question from one of our uh, friends in the audience. When a law passes that both parties support, are news reporters lazy in not reporting this? Or is it that they only like the train wrecks and the conflict? I don't think it's laziness. I think it's that the, the concern is that this is boring, um, that it won't attract an audience, that it, there won't be interest um, in the legislation. Um, and so, you know, so it'll get covered in the trade press, in the affected policy area. So 
uh, I'll, I'll offer example. In 2015, there was major legislation on Toxic Substances Control Act, which created a new division in the EPA uh, with its own dedicated funding stream regulating toxic substances. So um, this was a long uh, uh, result of a long negotiation between Republicans and Democrats. This happened, happened in divided government under Obama on environment. Um, it, it, this is a significant new set of regulations imposed with a, um, with a, uh, uh, a division dedicated to it and one that was, would be funded. It continued to be implemented under President Trump. Trump didn't attempt to, um, to undercut the implementation of this new law. Uh, and uh, it missed the most significant expansion of EPA's authority in 40 years, and no attention. I, you know, we, I, you know, looked for news coverage of it. Um, uh, it uh, you know, no, nothing on the nightly news. Um, no front page stories on this breakthrough because it was it was bipartisan. Boxer and Inhofe had worked it out, it, so it, it gets covered. Um, to the extent that it's covered at all in uh, publications read by the industry, <laughs> uh, even though industry and environmentalists signed off on it. I mean, this had the support of both parties and including environmentalist members. So, uh, so, so listening to you um, and particularly about the compromise and the frustration of majority party leaders where the government is controlled by one party, it makes me wonder what are members of Congress and leadership all about? They're clearly not able to pass a lot of their, their, their core policy preferences, the commitments that they've promised to their base. What are they doing? What is this about? Well, parties are enmeshed in a competition for power, for, for offices, for control of government. You know, the party that wins the majority uh, in the House of Representatives, gets to chair all the committees. You, you know, even if they win, even if they win a majority by one vote, that's they still they will chair all the committees and therefore have the agenda-setting power in every committee, standing committee in Congress. Same is true in the Repu uh, in the Senate side. So there's a lot at stake. They need to excite voters to care about who wins elections. They need to you know, tell them, you know, you know, this is what we would do. This, this is why the other side is doing a bad job. So there's lots of party messaging aimed at winning elections, at winning power, at you know, showing up the other guys for what they're doing wrong and in trying to make the case for yourself, for your own side. But it's electioneering. And we need to be clear that electioneering is different from lawmaking. It's, you know, it's easier to work out a slogan that members can members of a party can support than it is to get them to hash out the, the legislative details to enact a law. So this is just, this yeah. is just you know, a bit mind boggling. Uh, you've got parties that are more ideologically apart than we've seen in, you know, maybe since the Civil War. Um, we've got leaders who are telling their supporters messages that are ideologically extreme in many cases. Um, and yet they're reaching these compromises. And your book shows that often the, the leaders, the people who put together these compromises, don't want to brag about it. In fact, they feel pretty down about it. Um, it's, 
maybe that's the biggest change in the last half century that deal making and credit taking and so-called bringing home the bacon is less important than, um, than taking a stand for the base that is, as you said, symbolic and about holding on to power. Yes, yes. It, 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 is, it is interesting to see how little effort the parties make to take credit for what they pass. Um, like I, I, when they pass it on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and, you know, reflecting back on 2020, I mean, the CARES Act is amazing. And yet, I, I mean, who's taking credit for it? Anybody? Um, it's like it, it's, the whole thing is forgotten. Um, and forgotten even by the, the people who were responsible for putting it together. It's consistent, as you point out, Larry, with the, 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 the findings in our book. We looked at what members have to say about legislation that successfully passes uh, Congress. And we, you know, we looked at it over time. We, we looked at you know, the, the quotes that members give in news coverage of uh, past legislation, see what they say. And they're very negative. Uh, uh, on it, so the the, the 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 those who didn't vote for it criticize it, but even those who even those who supported it uh, often will say, "Well, this is the best we could do." That's a that's a that's not an unusual message that they'll um, they'll give a quote along those lines that you know we did what we could, um, but it's not it's not the kind of thing to fire up the troops. Um, sure. You need good messaging for that. Yeah, yeah. Carol Bufton has got a question for us. She asked. Okay, so what's the point of parties winning power if policy can't be enacted? That's a, uh, that's a legitimate question. Um, I mean, they fight for what they say they're going to fight for. So parties are not misleading you. They do. St so the Democratic Party do does stand for a different set of priorities and principles than the Republican Party. Um, so you can depend on them to push to, to fight for the things they say that they're they're go they're going to to try to do, but don't assume that they're going to succeed even if they have a majority, because even if the party the general um, tenor of the party uh, you know wants to support X or Y, it doesn't mean you'll be able to get the the universal agreement that will be necessary to do it, um, that there will be some holdouts in the party. And so, it, you know, you, uh, you, and you probably are not going to bring those folks along unless they have bipartisan cover. You know, these are the folks, not very many members of Congress represent swing districts, but the majority party always has to have a contingent of them in order to have a majority. And so those folks are cross pressured. And they don't really want to support legislation unless there is unless they are able to say that Republicans support it also if they're Democrats or Democrats support it also if they're Republicans. That's what they, they want. They want they want not to be seen as uh, a, a, a member of the national party predominantly. There's not a lot of such members, but it's always enough. It seems to create problems for the leadership. Uh, so that it, it definitely creates a gap between what parties say in elections and what they're able to do after the elections. And it's interesting to think about the Democratic and particularly Republican Party base of supporters. The, those are most uh, loyal um, and engaged. There's palpable frustration. And I think you see it certainly with Donald Trump, who uh, basically said, I'm going to blow up the system um, and drain the, the 
the tidal pools in, in DC. And I think part of your analysis helps to explain it. At one point you talk about um, this constant disappointment that the partisans are feeling for half measures. And you quote um, a longtime uh, uh, staffer to a member of Congress who says that the parties seem to be enmeshed in endless cycles of overpromising and under-delivering. And given that, maybe it's not a surprise that so many Democrats and Republicans are in this rage about why their party is not delivering, why they're not listening to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the parties enmeshed in this um, close competition for control, use that um, this strident rhetoric that's become normal in American politics about the, the you know the the evils of the other side, and you know all the things that we, you know we would do if you just give us a you, you know if you just get, you know vote for us and put us in in there, and then when you know they're not able to do do it that's the, you know that's that's the norm, then um, it's no wonder that you know that cynicism increases and that you know, that uh, the, the, the public loses trust. And in, in, I, I, I suspect it's one of the factors driving down the approval of national leaders in American politics, that, you know, presidents normally hover right around 50% approval. It's not unusual for them to go below it, and they are at the top. Congressional, uh, uh, congressional leaders' approval ratings are, are usually around 25%. Um, so they're not popular because there's, their strongest supporters are continually feeling let down. We, I mean, let's, 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 let's rewind, you know, to um, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. You know, we can reflect now on the importance of that legislation for our party politics afterwards, you know, under Obama, you know, the, uh, you know, the universal, uh, the step towards universal health care um, coverage under Obama. At the time it was passed, Democrats, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was very disappointed in the legislation. They saw it as a sellout for pharma pharmaceutical companies, didn't see the assistance to people who to buy health insurance as nearly sufficient. Um, so they found that, you know, when they went out to campaign in the 2010 elections, that they couldn't even take credit for the Affordable Care Act. So imagine what leaders confront with routine legislation, legislation, you know, has a lesser landmark status. Uh, so they, they don't talk a lot about what they were able to do. There's not a lot of explanation of what Congress does. Instead, they just focus on the, um, the partisan red meat um, that uh, can, uh, can excite the voters. Uh, but, uh, you know, later on when it comes time to deliver, um, you know, they are not able to do so in a way that the base feels uh, uh, vindicated by. Doug Hartman, who's chair of the sociology department at the University of Minnesota has got a question. How about court confirmations or other types of action rather than policy legislation? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, there has been a change in how confirmations work in the Senate that uh, uh, the executive ad, ad items on the so-called executive calendar, meaning uh, executive branch nominations as well as judicial nominations, uh, used to be subject to the filibuster. 
the Democrats in 2013 went, uh, went nuclear. They used a procedural mechanism to allow a simple majority to confirm uh, executive branch and judicial appointees below the Supreme Court. And then under President Trump, in order to get uh, Neil Gorsuch confirmed to the Supreme Court, uh, Republicans went nuclear to allow a simple majority in the Senate to uh, confirm Supreme Court justices. And so that has had the effect of allowing more confirmations to proceed on party line votes than had been the case. But if we take a wider view of nominations, you know, looking back over the decades, it used to be that they were just not very many roll call votes on nominations at all. Presidents largely got who they wanted uh, into those positions and there wasn't a lot of party conflict about it. As party conflict rose, it, uh, but the filibuster was in place, it became more difficult to get confirmations done. Uh, and so you began to see longer delays in uh, confirming both executive branch and judicial nominees. So that going nuclear in some ways returned back to an old status quo ante where presidents were basically getting who they wanted, even, even under conditions of divided government. They, it was just less politicized. Uh, so that, uh, yes, we do see people getting appointed to cabinet office, uh, uh, you know, cabinet's positions and people appointed to the Supreme Court who have no cross-party support today, and that is new. So you've described a system where Americans who want compromise are getting more compromise than they appreciate because of bipartisanship. You've also described a system that is understandably infuriating the progressives in the Democratic Party and the conservatives in the Republican Party who are being overpromised with pretty much confidence among the leadership that they're not going to be able to deliver. So are there reforms that you think should be done and for which problem? That's a tough question. Uh, as, I've, as I reflect on an American politics that's as evenly divided as ours is, where neither party really commands the trust of the American people, some, a party has to win an election. It's a two-party system. Someone has to win. Um, but you know, the short-lived nature of unified government, I think, reflects that lack of trust in any one party to, to hold the reins of power in the system. It's basically a 50-50 country. So I think a system of checks and balances that basically forces negotiation between the parties virtually at all times is well suited to a 50-50 country. If it, were a, if it were a set of circumstances where a small minority were empowered by American institutions to block what a large majority of Americans wanted, I think there would be more, uh, you know, I would have more confidence in recommending major reform to reduce the checks in the system. But I, I uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to do so under conditions like we are currently presented with. But, but let me ask, let me ask you about that because I look at the system and there's some things that alarm me. Um, there used to be a conversation about budget deficits and both parties for their own reasons, no longer really talk about it. Um, at some point, uh, America could be in a difficult spot and the lack of any conversation about it of a serious nature within the halls of government, it, to me, is a concern. We've got 
um, a security challenge with China, which our um, national security agencies are identifying as our number one threat. And if there's a coherent response to that, that's including Congress that's alluded me to this point, we've got deep racial divides with regards to policing and voting. Um, and as we've talked about, that's gonna be a red line for Republicans. So there seems to be you know, that and climate change, you know, there's a long list of big problems um, and Congress seems to be just stalemated on at least those issues. On other areas, they're able to um, you know, find bipartisan watered down solutions. I wouldn't say that they're always watered down solutions, um, but they, they largely find when solutions are found, they are bipartisan. Um, it's just about but, impossible to pass legislation but any those, other way. Those, those issues I'm talking about, budget deficits, uh, racial uh, disparities in voting and policing, the China, I mean, these are massive problems. And yeah. immigration. Were you that this system is not working, that it could, there are reforms that could help it work better? There, there are big problems that need to be addressed. But addressing them without cross-party support in a political system where no party seems to be able to maintain power for very long is not a recipe for a lasting uh, answer. Like imagine the uh, issue of climate change. I mean, if, we, if the US is going to decarbonize the economy, that's a decade long, multi-decade long proposition. Well, to pass something uh, without any cross-party support here in 2021, and then the 2022 elections, and there's a backlash swing like normally happens in midterms, what's the likelihood that any big blueprint um, that might be hashed out now will continue to go forward? Um, that if you can't get a deal, uh, then it's hard to implement and carry forward any solution that you might come up with as good as it might look on paper. If there isn't cross-party support that could sustain, that can sustain beyond the next elections, um, then it, it really isn't an answer. So, so there's no, I'd say that there's no shortcut for activists who want to see uh, progress on any of those issues. They have to get cross-party buy-in. You can't do this simply within one party. That's I mean, unless we, have a, unless we have a major realignment of voters in American politics where one party then becomes dominant, um, you know, so that they, you know, they can, you can expect that party to hold on to power for, you know, multiple elections, you know, one after another and, and can consolidate policies adopted by that party. So maybe the, but we haven't seen that. So maybe the take home message is that if you are passionate about seeing change, you need to enter into a conversation with folks you don't necessarily agree with and find areas where you can carve out policies. Um, I don't know. That's about how you. they do it in Congress. In fact, yeah, like the, just, the, uh, the, the energy bill in 2020, they don't talk about climate change, but they did the th they did things that were necessary to make for more clean energy. And they did things to address global warming. You just have to do it in a way that's sensitive to disagreements between the parties. And they, so it can it can be done even on environment, uh, which is you know a, a major flashpoint between the parties. Yeah, I think the the George Floyd bill, um, the John Lewis bill, um, the issues around the deficit, 
and rising debt. Um, I'd like to see action on those things, but in various ways they cross red lines. Uh, Professor Lee, this has been fascinating. Um, I think you really kind of opened people's eyes to the reality of Congress. And I wanna thank uh, Professor um, Francis Lee for absolutely fascinating conversation. I think um, sends strong messages to both citizens, um, party activists and the media to do a better job. Thank you very much.